Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. So I've mentioned this before, but I'll I'll mention it again. When I was a kid, I used to uh, love the Choose Your Own Adventure books. You guys know what those are? You ever read those before? So it starts out, everybody starts out on page one, the same storyline, so you're building the story, building the characters. Then maybe five or six pages in, you're met with a series of options. If you want to go through the tunnel, turn to page 33. If you want to walk through the door on the other side of the room, go to page 74. And so you make your choice, you turn to that page, the story continues for a couple more pages until you reach another series of decisions. And then you have two options. If you want to, you know, fight the dragon, turn back to page 19. If you want to run away from the dragon, turn to page 28. And so it goes on and on and on until the series of decisions that you've made lead to a certain outcome and the, and the story ends. And then if you, don't, if, you, if you don't like how that story ends, you can go back to the beginning, choose different things, and see if that op- those options are any better. Or if you just want to see how many different options there are, what would have happened if I had chosen this instead of that, then you can go back and work your way back through that. Uh, even Netflix, about four or five years ago, kind of got their feet wet into this with some of their movies and TV shows. They had a few, it would pause and you would make a, a choice to move the story along in one way or the other. Uh, I don't know how successful those were, but it seems like a pretty neat uh, idea uh, to do it in that sort of medium. But really, whether it's a Netflix show or, or a choose-your-own-adventure book, basically all that is is a fictionalized version of life. Because life is just a series of decisions, one choice after another, one decision after another. And most people, I would say, want to make good choices. I mean, some people are just self-destructive by nature, okay? But most people uh, want to choose the best possible option. And typically, the more that you want to choose the best option, the bigger the choices that you're making, the more stressed out you get about it. The more you fear, what if I don't choose the right thing? Because you really have a desire to make good key decisions in your life. And that's the question that we face uh, most often every day in life is, how can I make the best key decisions in life? If you've ever asked that question, then this week and in two weeks, we're going to discover and discuss together how to make key life decisions. That's the topic for this week. And then again, uh, Kim, next week, splitting it in half, and then following in two weeks, So we're going to finish the next couple of weeks here. We're going to finish up Acts chapter 1 as we look at this topic, how to make the best key life decisions. Uh, And so there are actually, it's a two-parter, so there's four keys to making key life decisions that we see in Acts chapter 1. We'll cover two of them today to kind of get our feet wet, give us some things to practice on the next couple of weeks. And then later on in two weeks, we'll cover the last two Um, of these keys to get this full idea of how we can make the best key life decisions. Um, 
So again, we'll look at two of them today, and this was, if you can believe this or not, this was going to be one sermon. I was going to try to pack it like a can of sardines and just get it all out there, and by Thursday morning, I was like, this is not going to work. There's so much more we could say that we should say, so let's let it breathe a little bit and spread it apart, and so this is week one of a two-week mini-series, How to Make Key Life Decisions. So we'll look at the first one off the top, and it, this may seem very non-spiritual, but it's in Acts 1, so it, very, it, it is very much spiritual. The first key to make the best life decisions is situation assessment. So let's look at, at Acts chapter 1. Um, if you have your Bible or your book or the Bible app, you can go there. Acts chapter 1, verse 21. We'll start kind of near the bottom and work our way kind of all over this last passage of Acts 1 the next couple of weeks. But Acts chapter 1, verse 21 is situation assessment. Here's what it says. So uh, this is Peter talking. So now we must choose a replacement for Judas from among the men who were with us the entire time we were traveling with the Lord Jesus, from the time he was baptized by John until the day he was taken from us. Whoever is chosen will join us as a witness of Jesus' resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Situation assessment. So before we can make a good key decision, we need to know where we are. We have to assess the situation. So you might ask some questions like, how did we get to where we are now? What built us up to needing to make a decision? What's the actual decision that I'm considering making? Right? It's living intentionally, not just, well, I'm going to figure it out as I go. I'm going to fly by the seat of my pants. That doesn't usually work out very well. So this is important that we assess the situation. You might even ask, how important is the decision I'm considering? Is it a thing that doesn't really need a lot of time and attention because who cares what we have for lunch today after church? I don't need to agonize for hours over that. You know, let's just do it and go. It'll be fine, you know. Or is it a thing that I really need to hunker down and think through and take some time on? Assess the situation. Maybe you would ask, who will be affected by this decision? Or, we'll talk about this in a couple weeks in more detail, who else might need to be involved in the decision-making process? Might I need to bring other people in to help me with that? And again, that's one of the keys that we'll look at next week. And then you might even ask, is there a timeline is there a deadline to this? I don't have all day to figure this out. I've got to make a decision now. Or I've got three months to get this thing figured out. You might need to assess that to know how to deal with this situation. And the disciples' decision that they're wrestling with is choosing a new apostle. And there's two reasons why. So let's look at the two reasons why they're making, let's assess their situation as they do in Acts 1 and look at why they're faced with this decision. The first obvious main reason is because there's an opening. Judas, who was one of the 12, as Peter said, is no longer one of the 12. Let's look at, you may be familiar with his story, but if not, let's recap the end of Judas's story here for just a minute. So Judas was one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus. He was personally, by name, chosen and called by Jesus to follow Jesus. So imagine Judas's life here. His everyday life for about three years is following Jesus everywhere he went, listening to the greatest, one of the greatest orators who ever lived, the greatest sermons who, who has ever been preached. Judas heard that with his own ears. He was there. He was a part of that inner circle. Now, there are dozens, even hundreds of other followers in circles, right? But Judas is in that 12. 
called to follow Jesus every day. And he's involved in the daily ministry of Jesus. So he's there when Jesus raises people from the dead. He's there when blind people can suddenly see when Jesus just puts mud in their eyes and tells them to go wash their eyes out. He's there. He sees that. Think about this. When Jesus one day is preaching and there's thousands of people gathered and it's lunchtime, they have nothing to eat. Jesus uses five loaves of bread and two fish to feed thousands of people. Judas is part of that ministry moment. He's there. He's with the other disciples handing out baskets of food as it miraculously multiplies to feed thousands of people. He's involved in the process. We also know from the Gospels that Judas was sort of the treasurer of the organization. He handled the finances. And we know that one day John in his Gospel records a time where they're sitting at a meal and this they call it, they call it a sinful woman comes in to Jesus. She has this expensive perfume. She pours it all over Jesus' feet and she washes his feet with this perfume and, and washes it with her hair. And in other Gospels this is recorded and Certain people say, what a waste of money. That's expensive perfume. That could have been used to fund the ministry. But John tells us it's Judas who makes that statement, the one who's got the spreadsheet, who's handling the money. He's like, do you know how many poor people we could have helped with that money? And she just poured it on the floor. So that's sort of the beginnings of where Judas sort of went wrong. He was called by Jesus, he followed Jesus, he served in the ministry with Jesus, but near the end, he's secretly plotting to betray Jesus. And so it's the Last Supper, or the night uh, Passover is happening, they're eating, Jesus and his disciples are eating together, including Judas. At this very intimate moment, Judas is there, at least for part of it. But part of the way through the meal, he gets up quietly to leave, and Jesus knows, he knows why he's getting up to leave. He even says, hey, go do what you're about to do. And so Judas goes to these religious leaders who have been hunting Jesus down, trying to find a time, an opportunity to uh, arrest him, to kill him. And Judas goes to them and says, hey, I know exactly where he's going to be all night long. He's not that far. We can, you can go right now and you can have your way with him. So Judas leads this procession of these religious leaders and soldiers to the, a garden where Jesus is praying and agonizing, knowing he's about to suffer and die. Judas leads the procession into the garden. He, he kisses Jesus to signify at, in the middle of the night, this is the guy you're here for, so there's no mistaken identity problem. Then Jesus is summarily arrested, goes through several illegal trials, and then he is flogged, beaten, and crucified to death. So Judas gets 30 pieces of silver from the religious leaders, right, for his betrayal, which is not really that much. It's maybe three, four hundred bucks. It's not like he's getting millions of dollars to do the worst thing ever done in the history of humanity. So after all of this transpires, Judas feels guilty about what he's done. So he takes the money and he goes back to the religious leaders and says, hey, you can have this blood money. I don't want anything to do with this. And so then, here's where sort of Matthew's the only gospel of the four that records the end of Judas's life. But then Acts 1, Peter, in this address to the people gathered here praying together, kind of gives a bit of a different take on it. But I think we can sort of put them together to get an idea of the end of Judas's life. So after Judas goes to them, they take the money. And then with that money, uh, a certain plot of land is bought. 
Now, whether Judas knows where that land is or not, somehow he finds himself on that very plot of land that the money that he gave back was used to purchase. And Matthew says he hanged himself in his grief over what he had done. Now, when Peter talks about it in Acts chapter 1, he says that Judas fell on the ground and his body split into pieces. So what we can maybe surmise by that is possibly both things may have happened or one or the other in some sort of combination. So I think what's probably likely here is either Judas had hanged himself here and after his body sort of decayed and gave way or a branch broke off or something, he then fell and his body split. Or as he's hanging there trying to kill himself, something else goes wrong and he dies a different way. Either way, in his, uh, I was going to say grief, and it sort of is grief, but really in his guilt, uh, he took his own life. One of the people that Jesus personally handpicked to follow him that then ultimately betrayed him for just a little bit of money, then in his grief took his own life. And so that is why the disciples here in Acts 1 are faced with this decision. And so they decide we, we have to fill this gap in. There's, there's 11 of us, but there needs to be 12. The question, though, then, is here's the second reason why they're making this decision. Why? Why not just have 11 and be good with it? Why do we have to have an open spot? It's just there's just now 11 of us. It's not a, a big deal. But I think what's happening here is Peter, who's sort of just taken charge of this business meeting, if you will, the first ever church business meeting happened here in Acts 1, um, he, he makes a connection that he, other, he used to maybe not have been able to make. And what's funny is when you look uh, in Luke 24, we looked at it a few weeks ago, uh, right before Jesus ascends in Acts 1, when Luke picks up, picks, uh, leaves off where Acts 1 picks up, he, Jesus is teaching his disciples during the 40 days after his resurrection, before his ascension. Look at this verse here, Luke 24, 45. It says then that, then Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So it seems in this 40-day time period, something clicked in Peter's brain. He'd had the teachings, he'd heard the teachings, he's read the Old Testament scripture, like he knows it, he knows it better than most people know it, but it's only after the resurrection, it seems like, that then he suddenly makes these connections. Because what he does in his address is he quotes, uh, I forget, what it's a psalm, I didn't write it down, a couple of quotes in the Old Testament psalms. What he's saying is, hey, did you guys realize that what we're living through, even what Judas did, the psalms talk about that? Like, that's a new revelation for Peter that I think goes back to that moment in Luke 24. His mind was now open to understand the scriptures in a deeper way than he'd ever known them before. So he's making this connection, and that's the second reason why they're making this decision, is because he's equating there are 12 disciples that Jesus chose. He chose that number for a reason. What was that reason? He's connecting the 12 disciples of Jesus to the original 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. He's equating things here that before he would not have connected those dots. But because his mind is open to understand, he's making this connection. And so he's saying, hey, it's important. If we're sort of, we feel like we're the next phase in the life of Israel in some way, we don't know what it's going to look like. We don't know where it's going to go. We don't know how we're involved, but we are involved. And so we need to complete the set. If there's 12 tribes of Israel, and there should be 12 apostles here in this sort of next phase of this movement. So they're completing this process and embarking on this decision, but they have to assess all of this. Now, they've kind of already done that. Peter gives a quick recap of what we just talked about in Acts 1, but they had to do the same thing that I think we need to do. So let me ask, what decision might you be facing right now in your life? 
What is a crucial thing that you're going over and over, you're obsessing about, you're fearful over? Maybe your question that you're facing, your decision that you're looking at in your life is, should I get married? And maybe you're with someone, and your question then is, are they marriage material? Or do I need to kick them out, and let's find somebody else? Maybe that's the question that you're wrestling with. Or maybe your question similarly is, should, if I'm single, should I remain single? And is it just for now, or is it for a long time? Is it for a longer season? Is it forever? Those are maybe a, a question that you might be wrestling with. Maybe it's this, should, should our family have kids? Or should we have more kids? Or should we adopt kids? Or should we foster kids? Those types of maybe big key life decisions that you either have, are, or will wrestle with. Maybe it's about your career. Should I change careers? It's a big key life decision. Or should I stay where I'm at but go for that promotion where I'm at? Or should I talk to my boss about a raise that I'm due? That's a big key life decision that we don't just want to walk into without assessing the situation. Maybe your question is, is it time to retire? Or if you are retired, what do I do now that I'm retired? Like, do I just sit around like a bum and do nothing? Or do I want to be productive? Or what, what, what's my purpose in this next season in life? Maybe the question that you're facing is, do I, is it time to relocate? Is it time just to downsize and move somewhere else in the city? Or is God calling us to move to a different state, different country? Like, it, this is a big key life decision that maybe you have, are, or will face. Or maybe it seems like an everyday decision, but it's a big one. Maybe it's a question of, how do I answer this difficult person in my life? How do I respond to them productively, positively, in a healthy way? That's a big decision that involves, if, you want, if we want to make the right decisions, it starts with this situation assessment. We want to assess these situations. How important is this decision? Or maybe, maybe your fear is, I don't want to get too over my skis on this. I want to make the right next step. That's important. That's part of assessing the situation because maybe you think your response to this person should be this, but that's two steps down the line. So instead of getting ahead of ourselves and making things worse, we want to step back and say, okay, this is the right next step. It requires assessing the situation. And then I think a, a huge question here um, is what are the obstacles that are keeping me from possibly making a decision? What are the excuses that I keep telling myself when I maybe know what the right next step is? It's okay to kind of talk through that, think through those types of questions and dilemmas that we face before we push the big red button and move on to the next thing in life. It's okay even to maybe literally make a pros and cons list. That's part of assessing the situation. It's okay to take time to do this, especially if you have the time to do this. Because if it's important enough to worry about, it's important enough to intentionally live and make these key decisions. And there's more questions and decisions, and there's more to it than that, but this is, this is the idea here. And again, this may not seem super hyper-spiritual, but this is exactly what's happening in Acts chapter 1. They know this is, this is a, a big decision that we're going to make. We've got to know what we're doing, know where we are, and then make a move. So that's the first key to making key life decisions from Acts 1 is situation assessment. The second key, the last one that we'll look at today and spend the rest of our time on is sincere prayer. So it's not just thinking and planning on your own. It involves sincere prayer. We see this again also in Acts chapter 1. So back to Acts 1. We'll look at verse 14. It says this, Then they all met together and were constantly united in prayer, 
along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. We'll talk about who's in there in two weeks, because that's a big part of another key. Skip down to uh, cha- or chapter 1, verse 24. So they, they prayed in verse 14. Now in Acts 1, 24, here they are again. Then they all prayed, O Lord, you know every heart. Show us which of these men you've chosen as an apostle to replace Judas in this ministry, for he has deserted us and gone where he belongs. So the most important thing I think that we can do, now there are two more keys left, but I think this is the most important thing that we can do when faced with a key decision is to pray about it. Now I know that's deep, right? And that's a, whoa, I never thought of that before. But honestly, how often do we make decisions without really praying about it? How many times are we guilty of just going with our gut? Well, I did pray about it. No, you didn't. Like, and you know you didn't, but it just sounds good to say that. I think we've all been there. We're too guilty of jumping the gun. We're skipping a step by asking maybe God's input on this, uh, or not just saying, I will pray about this without having any intention to do so, not being led by our heart, not being swayed by popular culture. Well, this is what everybody else is doing. It's like, that's what I used to say when I was 14. Like, I'm not going to live that way now. I'm in my 30s. Okay, well, I'm, past, I'm past that. So I'm going to let God have some input uh, and some insight into what this decision is going to be, ultimately. It's committing these decisions to prayer. It says they were constantly united in prayer. So I, I use the word sincere here. So let's break this down. I think there's three characteristics that we're going to cover. What is sincere prayer? What does that look like? Okay, it's not just like, now lay me down to sleep, pray the Lord my soul to keep. It's more than that. So what is sincere prayer? Let's look at three characteristics then of what sincere prayer is. And the first one is sincere prayer is introspective. Sincere prayer is introspective. Again, look at the beginning of Acts 1, verse 24, how their prayer starts. Then they all prayed, O Lord, you know every heart. I think this is a good place to begin our prayers. Prayers designed to be open communication with God, right? Nothing off limits, nothing held back, nothing hidden, nothing secret from him. God desires that in your prayer life. He desires that open communication, that transparency, that introspective transparency, and we should desire that as well. We see it in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. It says this, "'Search me, O God, and know my heart.'" Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Look at that. God, the the first thing here, God, search my heart. Investigate me. I want to be an open book to you. This is introspective prayer and it's effective prayer. But let's, I'm getting like sub, sub points here, which I don't always do, but, uh, I think there's three levels to this type of introspective prayer I want to focus on for just a minute or two here. There's, there's, and we see it here in both Acts 1 and then I think in Psalm 139. There's kind of uh, three concerns, I would say, um, about introspective prayer. What, What concerns us when we pray this way? So let's look at it just for a minute. The primary concern with introspective prayer is, God, what do you want to do in me? That's what Psalm 139 is. I think that's what the beginning of Acts 124 is. You know every heart. Search me, try me, test me, call me out. That's what we're looking at here. I desire God ultimately, primarily, to be more like you. If I'm going to make the best possible key life decisions, I need you involved in that. 
I need you to lead me and guide me, but first, I need you to work, some, I need you to work in me, okay? That, that's the primary concern with introspective, sincere prayer, is, God, I want to be like you, and so I want to allow you to do what you need to do in me to get me there. Then the secondary concern with this kind of introspective, sincere prayer is, God, what do you want to do through me? So God, work in me to work through me. That's what the apostles, that's why they're praying this way. God, we know you have great things for us to do, so you've got to help us to get our minds right, our hearts right, ourselves aligned with each other and with you to fill this missing piece so then we can go out for your glory. We can't do it on our own. We can't do it when there's only 11 out of 12. So what do you want to do through us is the secondary concern. And I pray that our prayers would be focused in that way on others. God, how can you use me to help someone else today? After, as you're working in me, let that just flow out of me for the benefit of those that are around me. That's the secondary concern with introspective, sincere prayer. And then the tertiary concern, the third concern with introspective, sincere prayer is finally, God, what do you want to do for me? A lot of times we put this at the top of the list, but it's at the bottom of this list. Introspective, sincere prayer Thirdly, is concerned with, God, what do you want to do for me? So we don't want our prayers to only be about us, but it's okay to pray for yourself, right? It's okay to pray for your needs. God knows you have them. God knows that you have certain desires that he wants to fulfill in your life. And so it's fine to pray, hey, God, I need healing. I need provision. I need wisdom. I need patience. I need peace. I need courage. And what's interesting is as you find you work through this progression, even most of the prayers for you connect back up to the top two. If you follow this pattern, I'm, I'm concerned more about in me, then through me, then for me. What's, what you're going to find is a majority of your prayers then turn in, the things that are even for you turn into then what God's doing in you and through you. It's, it kinda, it's funny how it works that way as we see introspective, sincere prayer in this order. And it's powerful and it's effective. So that's the, that's the first um, key or the first characteristic of sincere prayer um, is that it's introspective. Here's the second characteristic of sincere prayer, and that is that it is consistent. Again, Acts 1.14, they all met together and were constantly united in prayer, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brother the brothers of Jesus. The, the believers here in Acts 1 are people of consistent prayer. And the reason that they're gathered here, which we'll talk more about in a minute, is they're there because Jesus said, go and wait in Jerusalem and don't leave until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So they're, they're there. They have a mission. They have a goal. They know that they're just going to wait. And so they end up waiting there for 10 days together before anything happens. Now, I don't know about you, I've been to some marathon prayer meetings in my time. I've never been to a 10-day long prayer meeting before. It's a long time to wait. But they were consistent in their prayer. You ever heard the acronym PUSH, P-U-S-H? Pray until something happens. That's what they're doing here in Acts chapter 1. Push, they're pushing. Pray until something happens. That's consistency in prayer. How long are you willing to pray for something? How often are you willing to continue to pray for direction, to make a decision? Because in Matthew 7, Jesus says, ask and it will be given, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. 
but really in the original language there, it's more of this ask and keep on asking and you will receive, seek and keep on seeking and you will find, knock and keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. It's consistency in prayer that's required to be sincere. It's not a one-off, okay, God, help me to do this, amen. We never talk to him again about it. We never pray again about it. That's not consistent, which then would be insincere. I'm just asking him this one time to check it off the box so that if it doesn't happen, I can blame him. And if it does happen, I can say, well, prayer worked that time. Yippity-doo, right? So that's insincere. It's not consistent. So we want to keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Because if that decision in your life is important enough to pray about, then it's important enough to keep praying about. Not just once or twice, but until we receive an answer one way or the other. Direction, one direction or the other. And here in 1 Thessalonians, this is Paul's challenge for us to live in consistent prayer. And it's, it's 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, 17, and 18. It's three things, but they're all connected here. It's a, it's a prayer challenge sandwich, okay? He says this, always be joyful, number one. Never stop praying, number two. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Normally in prayer, we just focus on that middle part, never stop praying, but the other two parts above and below it are connected. Always be joyful, he says. Sometimes praying for something and praying for something and praying for something, the joy can get sucked out of you. I've been praying for months, I've been praying for years, I've been praying for a decade and a half, and I'm still waiting on God. That's not easy to do. So Paul says, be joyful, always. So I want our prayers to be joyful. Maintain joy in your prayer. Then after he says to pray here, he says, then be thankful in all circumstances. Now, I've heard this before, and I like it. He doesn't say be thankful for all circumstances, not for them, but in them. There's a big difference there. And I think how we view that will determine our joy at the beginning as well. And if we keep praying without ceasing. Because sometimes waiting for God to answer or to move is difficult. We find it hard to be thankful. and Instead, we grow bitter and angry and resentful that God hasn't answered yet. Or I'm still confused. And I prayed and prayed and prayed and God didn't come through. It's hard to maintain that joy and that thankfulness. But we can do that. And in fact, we know we can do it because the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, Isaiah 40, 31, he says, they that wait upon the Lord shall be really bummed out. He does, wait, wait, wait. No. <laughs> they that wait upon the Lord are going to get really run down and tired. He doesn't say that. He says, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. So it's all about that joy and that thankfulness that will determine the consistency of our prayers. And even while we're waiting, we can find strength. Because what Paul says here is, be thankful in all circumstances, right? So um, I think what he's, what he's trying to get us to see here is that he will give us what we need as we pray, even as we're waiting. He'll give you just enough to keep going, right? You have just enough hope, just enough faith to not give up, to be consistent in our prayers. And so then the third characteristic of sincere prayer, um, after we have been consistent, um, after we've been introspective, is to be expectant. Sincere prayer is expectant. We see it in Acts chapter 1. Let's look at it one more time. Acts 1, the end of verse 20. 
24 and into 25, they simply say, show us which of these men you have chosen as an apostle to replace Judas in this ministry, for he has deserted us and has gone where he belongs. There's an expectancy here. God, show us. We, we expect that you will come through. We're asking for your guidance. We know that you will give it. We don't know when. We don't know who you're going to choose to fill this spot, but show us. We know that you will do that. We know that you will answer, and we can pray the same way. We can have expectant prayer. Hebrews 4.16, one more scripture. It says this, So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. We can be expectant in our prayers. We can be bold in our prayers. Now, this is not, God, you owe me one. Now, that's not bold. That's stupid, okay? (laughs) It's not, God, you better do this or I'm out. Like, God is not, you you know, you can't can't put baby in a corner. You know, you you can't put God in a corner here, okay? That's not how that works. But what we can do is say, God, I believe you are who you say you are. I believe you will do what you say you will do. You want me to come to you for guidance, so I'm coming, and I expect that you'll guide me. Just like the apostles, I don't know exactly what that means, what that looks like, how long it'll take, where it will take me, but I trust you in this process. I'm giving you complete control over these decisions in my life. We can can be bold because we know that God cannot lie. We know that God is always there. We know that he will answer and give directions. We can be bold and expectant in our prayers. So sincere prayer is the second key. It's it's that we're introspective in our prayer. It's more about what God's doing in me and through me. We can be consistent in our prayer. It's prayer that doesn't quit, doesn't give up. And then as we pray, we can expect that in his time, in his way, he will answer and respond. And as we close, let me just give you this one idea to think about and chew on the next couple of weeks. Here's the beauty and the power of sincere prayer. If your prayers remain sincere, sometimes your prayer becomes surprising. If your prayer remains sincere, sometimes your prayer becomes surprising. We see this in in two ways very quickly as we close. Sincere prayer first can take you to places that you never expected to go. That's exactly what happens in Acts 1. Again, they are gathered for the purpose of just waiting on the Holy Spirit, praying for the Holy Spirit. But as they are introspective in that prayer, as they are expected in that prayer, as they're sincere in that prayer to God in this moment of just waiting on whatever God has next, he gives them, hey, you need to do this first. That's not why they were there. They didn't gather together to fill this spot. They were already gathered for some other reason, but because their prayer was sincere, God showed them, here's the actual next step. Then we'll get to the Holy Spirit coming, okay? God can do the same thing for you. When you're sincerely praying, God might surprise you. You're praying for this thing over here, but all of a sudden you see him working over here in your life. You're like, wait, I wasn't even focused on that. Surprise! God wants to surprise you. He wants to blow your mind with what he can do. I'm not even looking for him. It's like a magic trick, you know? It's like focus on over here. He's working over over there. God wants to do that. As our prayer remains sincere, sometimes we're surprised at where he answers and what he does that we're not expecting. The second part of that is that sincere prayer can take us to heights that we never thought possible. Now, we'll cover this more in in part two of this series, but as they prayed in Acts chapter 1, 
as they, I just say, they were praying. God was, he surprised them with just giving them the two nominees right off the bat. Two guys. There, may, there, were, uh, there were 120 plus people in this room that they could have chosen from. And God, as they sincerely prayed, he said, here's the two to choose from, now make a choice. So God can do the same for us. God wants to, su- God wants to surprise us. God wants to give you clarity on that next step. You're like, whoa, I didn't, I didn't see that coming, or I didn't know that was the next step. But as we're sincerely asking God what is next, he will show you what is next. God honors sincere prayer. Not prayer with a hidden agenda, not prayer that twists God's arm, not prayer to try to obligate him to move in the time or the way that we want, but just sincere prayer is effective. So I, I don't know what key decision you might be facing right now. I don't know what life-altering choice you are faced with. You're at a fork in the road. Maybe there's like four different paths you can go or 12 different options for you, and it's overwhelming. But I do believe that these two keys are a great start to help you get where God wants you to go. And there's two more that we'll talk about that will kind of finish off this set, uh, so to speak. But the next couple weeks, we can be thinking in, in these terms, assessing the situation. Where am I? How has God been in this process? What do I feel like he's doing? What are the real choices I'm facing? And then just sincerely praying to God about that decision. God, what do you actually want here? What are you trying to show me through this? What direction is best? Asking him for his leading, his guidance. And I believe that as we do this, we can get ready, buckle up, because God will do something special in you, through you, and for you. Let's pray. God, we know as we start out at the top that life is just a series of decisions. Some small, some everyday things like what shirt to wear or, you know, what color do I look good in or whatever. What are we going to eat for lunch in a few minutes? But there are some things that we all face and maybe many today are facing big, key life decisions, life and death decisions, things that we can't even begin to imagine the enormity of those things. And we could try to live on our own and try to make those decisions on our own, but you want to be part of that process, God. Not only do you want to be part of that process, you want to be chairman of the board of our lives in these processes and these decisions that we're facing and calculating and trying to figure out. And so my prayer is is that as we face these key decisions, may we carefully and soberly assess the situation. May we live intentionally, not just as life comes at us, I'll deal with it, but no, what's the next thing that I'm to do? What's the next step that I'm to take? Where is God actively leading me, trying to figure out how we got here and how to move forward? Let's assess those situations, but let's do it in prayer. God, we want you to be in control of our lives. We know that it's the safest place we can be because you can, you're eternal. You can see the very end of time and you can see the very beginning of time. We're just a small blip on the radar. That's our entire existence. So you can handle our decisions. You can handle the things that we are facing. So I pray that as we ask questions, we would pray sincerely, God, what do you want? What do you want to do first in me? Then how do you want to work through me? And then what do you have for me? Help us to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading. Help us to listen for your voice. Help us to wait patiently for direction, as hard as that can be sometimes. Because we know, we expect that you will guide, you will lead, you will answer every step of the way.
So I pray for strength. I pray for encouragement for each of us on our journeys, that we would trust you with our lives and our decisions. We'd place them firmly in your hand and know by faith, if you're in control, that the best is yet to come. We believe this by faith. So help us to live out these keys this week as we just wait for you to work, wait for you to move, wait for you to lead and guide us into all that you have for us in these key life decisions. God, I thank you and praise you for all those here today that you would give them a great week this week and bring us back next time ready for more of you. In Jesus' name, amen.